If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn to Psalm 130 with me this morning. We've been looking at the Psalms this summer. Psalm 130 has a particularly special place for me. If any of you have ever had that feeling in your life of being forgotten or left, I specifically remember one incident, and I was reminded of it earlier uh, this summer, just a few weeks ago, and I feel like I, uh, I'm hoping my mom's not watching because I'm going to tell on her. But I was in the eighth grade, and I had made the, the ninth grade team. So it was two different schools, and, and before you think that was something else with basketball, that was my prime. It lasted about three months. And so I had to go to the high school, and I didn't know anybody, and I was kind of scared about it for practice. And my first time at practice, first day, so I go, I'm excited, I'm on the team, I'm nervous because I got all these high school kids around. I don't know where anything is in the high school. So I tell my mom to pick me up 30 minutes after practice because I don't want anybody seeing my mom picking me up, you know, because all these other kids are driving or riding with buddies. And so I asked my mom to pick me up about 30 minutes after practice was over and I hid because I didn't want my coach to know because the last thing you want is your high school coach waiting on you for your mom to come out there with you you know and so I kind of you know, and so I was ready well 30 minutes was over everybody had gone I'm thinking okay good this worked out perfectly except mom didn't come she wasn't there an hour goes by and mom's still not there and so I began to panic I don't know where anything is I don't know what to do, and I'm waiting outside. I start feeling the doors, and the doors are locked. Everything's been locked up. I hid really good. And so I'm panicking, and y'all know, it's like, the, it's like a little kid in the grocery store that can't find their mom, you know, and you start panicking quickly. Panic starts to set in. PTSD is happening right now. And so I'm worried about this, and I'm looking for some place. I don't know what to do. My mom doesn't even know I exist anymore. My dad, I don't know where he is. Nobody cares about me. It's over, right? Life is done. I'm going to have to sleep here, and all the high schoolers are going to find me asleep on the sidewalk as they get to school in the morning. I walk around the school until I find a payphone. Now, for some of y'all, we need to explain this, I know. We were, we were in Brevard a couple weeks ago, and there's like a telephone booth, and my kids are getting in it, taking their pictures like this, some tourist attraction. <laughs> what in the world are y'all doing? It's hard to explain. I find a telephone, and angrily, after about an hour and a half of wandering around, I angrily, I do what any smart teenager would do. I pick up the phone without a quarter, and I do what? Call collect. Some more explaining to do, I know. When you call collect, it's just you and the operator on there. It's really awkward for a 13-year-old. And you call up, and the operator doesn't even say, hey, she's angry at you. And, and she says, operator, yes, I would like to make a collect call to this number, please. Now, again, kids, I'm sorry. Your parents are going to have to talk about this over with lunch with you probably. Um, but every call through a pay phone you had to pay for, you call collect, that meant whoever answered it had to pay for. 
So we had this way back then for my parents, if I ever had to call collect, you don't ever say your name. You just say what you need. That way we don't have to pay for the phone call and mom would turn it down. So I'm mad. Mom doesn't answer. Call back, collect. Operators get mad at me. Call back, collect. Mom doesn't answer. Finally, the third time, operator gets on there. I want to make a collect call. We make the phone call, and I hear my mom pick up on the other side, hello? And the operator says, you have a collect call from, and at that point, you're supposed to say your name, right? And then she has to say whether she'll accept it or not. But instead, I just say, Mom, you forgot me, and I'm dying here at the high school. And I hung up. About 15 minutes later, Mom pulled up, thankfully, and it worked. But I was thinking about that time, and I think that that moment has always stuck with me because of that idea of feeling forgotten, right? The idea of hopelessness sets in. You don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do, and you feel forgotten. I'm going to be honest with y'all. Before I came here, I had this same feeling in ministry. In 2020, whenever we had the pandemic hit and everything shuts down, there for a few weeks, I'm going, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what the answers are. I don't know how this is going to work out. And in some sense, you have that same stirring inside of you of feeling forgotten. And it was at that point that Psalm 130 became precious to me. It was at that point that Psalm 130 became, kind of became the place I went, you know, the refuge that I dove into of the fact that I know God is with me in spite of my feeling at this point. I know he is there and he is watching over me. So this morning, I want us to turn to Psalm 130 and maybe this morning you too can understand that relief we have of knowing that we have a God who cares for us and never leaves us. So Psalm 130, the psalmist writes, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and your truth and that, that comfort that it brings to weary souls. And as we gather in this space this morning, I am confident that some of us here are weary and tired, but all of us here are desperate for you. And so God, may your word this morning be like a fresh, cool stream to our hearts and to our souls. And may we find encouragement here that can propel us to live every single moment and day for you. All of this we ask in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I think it's always important to put our Psalms in context. Psalm 130 is a part of a smaller book within the Psalms. It's a book of 100 and, uh, excuse me, of 15 Psalms starting in 120 and going through 134. 
this book of 15 were put together. And if you look at the top of these, of every psalm, you'll see that little subscript, a song of ascents. And so these are 15 songs that were put together called the songs of ascents. These songs were written and collected. And I say collected because four of them are by David, one by Solomon, but they're written and collected during the time of exile whenever the Israelites had lost Jerusalem, the temple had been knocked down and destroyed, and they had been taken into exile into Babylonia. And so they're in exile. They get word that they can return back to, uh, to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple. So that's past David's time and past Solomon's time. It's after them. But the songs that they have collected reminds them of even David and Solomon wrote, reminds them of this process of ascending, hence the song of ascents, the ascending back to the hill of God to worship him. So this book was collected together to help these pilgrims or sojourners and the exile to look forward to coming back to Jerusalem and more particularly to look toward the reestablishing of the focal point of their worship, the building again of the temple. Now that's important for us to remember. For these Israelites at this time, that temple was where God dwelt, right? That's the holy of holies. That's where he was. So if you wanted to worship God, you had to go to the temple. If you wanted to meet God, make sacrifices, all of those things, you had to go to the, the temple. They would learn about the word of God in synagogues and other places, but true worship had to be done at the temple. So throughout the years then, even after the temple was rebuilt, throughout the years, there would be times and seasons for the Israelites to come back to Jerusalem to worship there, and they would sing these songs of ascent in going back. It was a part of their trek, their pilgrimage back to worship. So these songs were very important to them. And they had these themes that are running throughout, similar to the themes that we find in the Psalms already, themes of desperation. We, we must have you, Lord. If we don't have you, then we've got nothing. Themes of dependence and, 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 and understanding that, it, that, that God must do this in this. He must work in us, that, that we can't defend ourselves against our enemies. We can't win this battle. We can't even rebuild this house. In fact, Psalm 127 is the focal point, I believe, of the songs of ascents. It's the center one. And notice what Psalm 127 says. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In other words, they're going back to build this temple, but they recognize that unless God builds it, whatever we're doing is in vain. So they state their dependence upon God and the necessity that they have for him. Unless the Lord watches over this city, the watchman stays awake in vain. They are absolutely dependent upon him. But in the midst of this desperation and dependence, we find this theme of hope. We find this theme of hope. And so in Psalm 130, this kind of comes out standing in the midst of all of these other Psalms in a unique way. To this point, uh, the songs of ascent have focused on what the enemies of God's people have done to them. 
And so they look on the outside and we see the Babylonians and, and all those others and look, God, what they have done and how they have heard us and how they have put us down is focusing on what the enemies have done. Those outside have done to them. And so you have like Psalm, just quickly, Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long furrows. The Lord is righteous. He's cut their cords of the wicked. In other words, he's saying, look, we have been beaten up. We have been cast out. We have been hurt. They've been plowing us up, making long furrows on our back even. And so the enemies have come after us. And the psalmist focuses in on how God deals with their enemies, how he is going to answer that. But Psalm 130 takes a twist. Psalm 130 moves away from what the enemies have done and the psalmist begins to look at himself. He begins to look at himself. And it says, and you may miss this because we've seen it throughout, by the way. We saw it in Psalm 3 with Absalom chasing David and David having to flee to the cave. We, saw, we see it uh, later in Psalm 34 with David running from Saul and having to flee from Saul with nothing left and having to act crazy to get away from him. We, see, we have seen this before where David has been pushed to his limits and run off. And so he cries out to God there from the caves. And so you may think it's the same thing again, but this one starts out. Out of the depths, I have cried to you. I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths, I cry to you. O Lord, hear my voice. Here's a realization here as we come to this that the psalmist stops talking about what the enemies are doing to him and he starts talking about himself. Because here, the psalmist is not just saying that he's, he's crying out because they've pushed him. The psalmist begins to look at the main problem here. And the main problem is not the enemies from without. It's his own sinfulness from within. And, and I say that to be uh, for us because oftentimes we like to look on the outside and what everybody else is doing us. We're under attack. They're being mean. They're harsh. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing. When our greatest problem is not from anybody outside of us, our greatest problem comes from within and that is our own sinfulness. Our greatest problem, the thing that can do the most damage to each and every one of us is not some enemy on the outside. God deals with them, but we've got to deal with our sinfulness on the inside. And that's what can send us to an eternal hell. And the psalmist says, out of those depths, I cry to you. Out of the depths of my sin, not just his suffering, he's calling his, like the, the depths are referring to water. He's drowning in his sins. He recognizes he's drowning in his sins and I'm crying out to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. It seems here that the psalmist is reminding himself and all of those who would sing these psalms as they collect them together and as they're journeying back to the temple, as they're thinking about worshiping God at the temple, ascending that hill again, he's reminding them that your greatest need is for your own sins to be forgiven. Don't forget, don't forget who you are. Paul does this all the time, by the way. 
You can read Ephesians, Ephesians 1. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Christ Jesus, in love, he has called you to himself. He has given you the earnest of his spirit. He has come to you. He has saved you. You are his child, adopted as his children. He tells us that in Ephesians 1, but what does he go and do in Ephesians 2? He reminds us of what we once were. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You were once disobedient following the course of the power of this world. You were doomed like the rest of mankind. That's who you were. And that's not the only place he does. He does it in Colossians 1. Out of the darkness he has called you into the light. You were in the darkness. You were following, as in Thessalonians, Paul says, you too were lovers of idols. You too were bowing down to other gods. And before we start thinking that that's what they do in other countries and other places, we too, here in our country, in our place, bow down to idols and worship things that aren't truly God. And so he's saying, you were once in darkness, you were once dead, you were once all of those things. Paul continually in the New Testament reminds us as believers of what we once were. And why does he do this? Why does he do this? Because we can never get over that. We can never get over what God has done for us. We can never get over what, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We should never forget that we were once dead and disobedient. We were once doomed like the rest of mankind, but God saved us out of it. We can never forget that we were once walking around in darkness and bowing down to idols, but God called us out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. We can never forget that our sins had taken us down to the depths. We were hopeless and we were helpless, drowning in them with nowhere to turn in our own power and our own strength. And all we have is that God himself reached into those depths and saved us and called us out. We can never forget this. That's why Luther, Luther called Psalm 130 a Pauline psalm. He said, I think this is the one Paul wrote. Now y'all get that later. Why? Because this is exactly what the psalmist is saying. Out of the depths I cry to you, oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. When the psalmist realizes his own sinfulness, he knows the only one that can pull him out of the sin that he's in, the depths that he's in, is God himself. Because it says, if you, oh Lord, should mark iniquities, oh Lord, who could stand? The one who judges us is the only one who can save us. Do y'all hear what I'm saying right there? The one who we have to answer to, the one who judges us, is the only one who can save us. And so the psalmist pleads to God. He's not making a command here. He's not saying, oh, Lord, hear my voice. You better, right? He's saying, please, God, if you don't hear me, I've got nowhere else to turn. If you don't pull me out, I've got nothing else to do. If you don't save me, God, I'm drowning in my sins and I'm here for eternity. If you don't do this, I cannot stand, God. Oh, Lord, let your ears be attentive to me. This is a statement of desperation. Now, let me say one thing here. I am under no uh, idea that everybody in this room is following Jesus. I would like to think so. I would like to think that everybody in this room has, has 
Recognize that you're a sinner. Recognize that you can't save yourself from your sin. Recognize that Jesus is the only one who has come to save you through the death on the cross and the blood that he shed. And recognize that unless you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, you have nothing. I'm praying that is everybody in this room. But I do believe there may be some here that are still drowning in the depths. And my fear is you don't even know it. My fear is you think everything's okay. My fear is that you think it's all right. So what I want to say to you this morning is I want to pray even now. And if you're a child of God, be praying even now that God would open all of our eyes to see that in our sinfulness we have no hope and we are helpless. The only thing we can do is cry out to a God who can save us. That's all we can do. And the psalmist recognizes we're going back to build this temple, but unless God builds it, it's nothing. We're going back to, to serve him, but unless God is with us, it's nothing. I know that everything I have is because of what he's given me, even my salvation that has come. We have a tendency to look at outward circumstances, but don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what God has saved you out of, and you can never, ever get over that. In fact, it's why we say we preach the gospel to ourselves every single morning, right? Every single morning we get up and we recognize, I am a sinner that doesn't deserve salvation, but God in his goodness has saved me and redeemed me, so now I'm going to live for him. And you see that in this psalm. Why, why Luther loved to call it the Pauline psalm. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? But you know what happens in, in Ephesians 2? You were dead in your trespasses. You were disobedient like the course of this world. You were doomed like the rest of mankind. Y'all know what that happens next in verse 4, right? But God, being rich in mercy, in the love in which he loved us when you were dead in your trespasses, and he made you alive together with Jesus Christ. That but God is, is everything to us. That but God means it all. We are drowning in our sins in the depths of it all. Unless he saves us, we are dead. No one can stand before him unless he pulls us out but God. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And why has he saved us? To worship him. You see, these sojourners and pilgrims who were going back to Jerusalem were heading back to the temple, right? They're going back to worship. And so they're going back to worship and they want to be reminded at this point that we were once in our own sinfulness and that God saved us out of it. We were once lost and undone and God came and redeemed us and saved us out of that exile, out of that abandonment seemingly. We were once there and God has pulled us out of it. And so as we go to worship, we need to remember that we owe everything to this God. And I want you to know that it will do your heart good to remind yourself every single day that I owe everything to the Lord. As you come into worship here on Sunday morning, remind yourself, I owe everything to him. I'm still in the depths of my sin if it's not for him. Turn my heart towards you. Let me cry out towards you. I owe everything to you. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. The good thing is 
that we have promises in the scriptures, right? When we call upon the Lord, he hears us. In fact, it tells us anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do y'all hear what I'm saying? And so the psalmist here says, I was in my depths and you saved me. In fact, this Psalm 130 is almost an ascending ladder in and of itself. Out of the depths and every step, you start seeing what God has done. I was in the depths and you saved me, Lord. I cried out and you saved me. And now what has he saved us for? My sin, the depths of it, God's mercy has come, even as it says to the voice, please for mercy. But with you, there is forgiveness. So what has God saved us for? And really, this kind of becomes the story of the Christian life. We were in our sins. We called out for mercy. God saves us to worship him, honor him, and follow him. And now what has he called us to do? Then what, if you will? And I think verses five and six are the heart of this passage. Having been saved out of the depths, we are to wait. Now that bothers us, I know. Because we as a people have this natural tendency, have this natural tendency for instant gratification, don't we? If you want to see your pastor, Allison always says this to me, be careful. Because if you want to see your pastor get upset, have him drive through the McDonald's drive through line and then tell me I got to pull over into one of those parking spaces and wait on my food. It should not be this way, Right? This is not right. You can't blame it on COVID forever. <laughs> and if we think about ourselves, right, we, we think about that. We get in trouble when we fall into the trap of instant gratification all the time. Think about Adam in the garden. This instant gratification, you eat this, you will not surely die. Let me eat it then. Think about Abraham with the promise. He was told Sarah would deliver the child, but he, he needed it quicker. He needed it to happen faster, and he messed up. Think about David with Bathsheba. He needed it right now. He needed it then, and he messed up all throughout the Scriptures. You can see this, this craving for instant gratification only lead us to despair and terror, right, and to sinfulness. And it's our natural tendency. We want it, and we want it now. And what the Lord says is, those who believe and trust in him, we have an entirely different posture. We don't fall for the need of instant gratification. We know gratification is coming in the end. So while we wait on that, we wait on the Lord. We're to wait. Saints throughout all of history, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're called to wait. Think about Moses in the wilderness. I love what Moses did. Moses did some dumb stuff. I mean, it caused him to not be able to enter the promised land. But one thing he did, when the Lord was with him and that pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day representing the presence of God, God told Moses to go and God said, I ain't going anywhere unless you lead me, right? I'm not leaving this place unless you go before me. Where you go, I'll go. If you stay, I'm staying. That's the heart of the believer. I'm not going anywhere without you, Lord. I'm not pursuing after anything without you. And when you fall for that need of instant gratification, you are stepping away from God and going after things without him. And God says, you, child, are to wait. Wait. But that waiting is not laziness. That waiting is not sitting around and doing nothing. 
My dad used to do this all the time, right? Whenever we were working on something and he had to run to the store and buy it, we never got to go with him. Why? Because we'll beg for to buy something. Y'all know how that goes. And so he would always tell us, you wait here. And while you're waiting, sweep out the yard or sweep out something. He'd come up with something for us to do. We knew it wasn't nothing, but it was a task we were to do while we were waiting. And we knew that whenever we come back, right, whenever he comes back, he's going to see if we've done the task. That's how we wait as believers. We wait with a task before us. We've been given a command. The command is to go and make disciples of all nations. The command is to spread the good news of the fact that you who were in your depths of your sin have been called out and somebody else can have that same joy and satisfaction. Go tell them about it. While you are here, you wait with a command to go. By going and spreading and telling of the good news of Christ, we are demonstrating that we're waiting on him. What we're really waiting for is a new command. We'll get that in a minute. We wait with a task for us. And, 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 and Scott mentioned it earlier. As we sang Psalm 130. I love that singing this psalm. As he's talking about that, he's talking about the fact that individually we're all in here waiting in some ways. Waiting on an answer to prayer, waiting to hear from God, waiting to know what to do, waiting on these things. And that, my friends, is exactly where God wants you. Because you know that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. We're going to get you to promises in a minute as well. You know he has your best interest in mind. You know he wants for your good. So the waiting part is for your good. We are not on his, uh, we're, he's not on our timetable. We wait on him. And it builds trust. It builds faith. But let me say this also. Waiting takes courage. Waiting takes courage. It's not courageous to jump after the first next big thing. And I'm not talking about the kind of courage that self-esteem, self-help, make you feel better about yourself kind of stuff. I'm talking about the kind of courage that is based upon knowledge, knowledge of the fact that it is the Lord, our God, whom we trust. He's the one who spoke everything into existence out of nothing. He's the one who holds everything together. He's the one who is sovereign over all things. That's my God. He's who I'm waiting on. So I'm not rushing to do anything outside of him or above or ahead of him. What I'm holding on to is who he is and what he's done. And while I do that, I wait for him. And I trust him, and he builds character within us. The posture of the believer is to wait, but we wait in hope. Think about what, what was said in Acts chapter 1 as Jesus ascended. He told him, you know, you're supposed to be my witnesses. Go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth. And then he ascends into the clouds. And what happens next would be the same thing before we judge any of the disciples. They were doing the same thing y'all be doing. They were staring up like this. Of course. And what do the angels come and do? What are y'all looking for? Just as he went that way, he's coming back. And he told y'all what to be doing, right? So wait on him coming back. And while you wait, you have a task. And that's the hope that we have. The hope that we have is found in the promises of God that he has given us. We hope, as it says in Psalm 130, we hope in his word. And what does his word 
tell us. His word tells us that while those Israelite sojourners and pilgrims in those days coming back to Jerusalem was looking for a building that would be built so they could worship God, while they were doing that, we today have something greater than that temple in Jerusalem. We had one who ascended a hill that we could never climb, the hill called Calvary. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We had one who climbed that hill on our behalf. And what did Jesus tell, he, tell us he was going to do on that hill? He said, they will tear down the temple, but guess what will happen? In three days, I will build it back again. And what we know today is that we don't meet God in a building. Y'all understand that, right? We don't meet God in a space. We don't meet God in a location. We meet God in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's where we find him. That's what we do. And so here we see that the promises of God give us this hope that to worship God and to find him, now we ain't got to make some trek back to Jerusalem. We simply have to hit our knees and call upon Christ, and there we have found the Lord. That's the promises. And so now all of the promises are yes and amen in what Christ has done in reestablishing the point that we find worship in through him. He will not leave us. We cannot be separated. All things work together. We are more than conquerors. He will build his church. He does truly love us. He will come back for us. All the promises of God are found as yes and amen. So that hoping makes the waiting a lot sweeter, right? We wait with that hope of his promises that have been given to us. And in waiting, we recognize, y'all, I knew my mom was not gonna leave me all night at the high school. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And sometimes we do God that way. We're like, what are you doing, God? Here I am. But thank God, not to take the metaphor too far or be cheesy, thank God we don't have to call collect, amen? We call on him and he hears us. And we're reminded this waiting is teaching you to trust. I'm still here. I'm still here. You got the hope that I'm not going to leave you. You got the promises that you hold on to. Let me tell you how secure we are. I love, I love some uh, uh, Augustus Top Lady. Maybe I mentioned Augustus Top Lady. Lived in the 18th century. Wrote the hymn Rock of Ages. Wrote the hymn Rock of Ages. Another hymn he wrote that I love is A Debtor to Mercy Alone. And the third verse of a debtor to mercy alone, my name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. I like that, right? Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure the glorious spirits in heaven. Did y'all hear that last verse? Those saints who have gone on before us they may be more happy than us right now as they are there at the throne of God, but they are not more secure. You hear what I'm saying? They may be more happy than us, but they're not more secure than us because Jesus has promised us, I am not going to leave you nor forsake you and I will bring you back to myself. Amen. We wait and we hope in that. And finally, we watch. We wait, we hope, and we watch. Here's the story. More than a watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Alice and I have had experience with a watchman serving overseas. There was some fear of danger where we were staying, and so there was a watchman that was placed outside. At first, I said, like, Dog, we don't need a watchman. We, you know, I can handle myself. Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
They're like, no, nah, you, need, you need a watchman. Well, this watchman comes, and we, the kids are younger. We're living, we're staying over there, and the kids were there, and starts out, man, this watchman's on fire. As soon as it gets dark, he starts blowing a whistle. Every 30 minutes, he hammered on a whistle. Now, as one who played basketball most of my life, if I hate anything, it's a whistle. Every 30 minutes, I'm talking, he didn't hold back. Every ounce of air he could push through that whistle, he did, hammering it. And I said, what in the world is he doing? He don't understand a lick of English, so it didn't matter. So I had to call somebody every 30 minutes. We finally get, what you doing? He said, I'm scaring people away. I'm letting them know we're awake. I said, man, you can't do that all night. I got to sleep. Okay, sorry, sir. He started off on fire. I woke up early the next morning, and I look outside, and the watchman's asleep right in the middle of the yard like this. When you're a watchman, you have a job. And that job is while it is dark, right, you are to keep watch over what you are protecting. You're to keep watch for what you're looking for. You're to, you're to stay alert. You've got to keep all your faculties there. And you've got to do everything you can to, 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 to accomplish what that one who has asked you to watch over has sent you to do. You've got to stay alert. But what are you hoping for more than anything else as a watchman? You can't wait for the sun to rise when you can let down your guard a little bit, when you can realize you're off duty, when you can realize you don't, have to, you don't have to do that for a while any longer. You've done your job. You've done for it. And what the psalmist says here is that's how we watch. We wait and we hope and we watch. And we're watching for that sun to rise. And as Hosea chapter 6 says, as surely as the coming of the dawn, he will return. And so we know that every single morning it has not failed, it has not stopped for all of eternity. When the Lord has set this earth into motion, the sun has come up every single morning. And just as sure, just as sure as the sun comes up, we know our Savior, who we are waiting on, will return for his people. Amen? And that's what we're watching for. That's why we live our life for his glory and for his name because we don't know when that'll be. We just know it is sure as the sun that comes up. And while we are here, we watch. We do our job. We do our task. We live for him. We seek out others. We do what God has called us to do. We use all of our faculties, all of our energies, all that we have to make sure we take care of what God has put us to take care of. We watch as a watchman does. But man, we cannot wait for the morning because what we know, what we know is that when the Lord returns for his people, all that we have ever hoped for, longed for, and desired will be found in him fully and completely. Fully and completely. We wait, we hope, and we watch. What does it say at the end? O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem his people. It will happen. There's a promise we can hold on to. There's a promise we can hold on to. Not lose one, he will redeem his people. We wait, we hope, and we watch. My desire this morning 
is that each and every one of us in this room will come to reflect upon Psalm 130. If you've been saved by the Lord God Almighty, you remember when you cried out out of the depths and you remember when he saved you and redeemed you. Praise God, wait and hope and watch with us here. If you have not known Jesus as your savior, then I need to alert you to the fact that you are still in your sins. If you've not trusted in him, the one whom you must answer to is the only one who, you can, who can save you. But he is ready to save you this morning. And what it says here, oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Cry out to him for mercy and he will surely save you. He will surely save you. And all of us in this room, we look around together and we wait and we hope and we watch for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. Thank you for the truths that it has for us. So God, we praise you. We praise your name. And I ask now, Father, that you work in this place. Even as we have sung and worshiped you in truth, even as we have read your word together in Psalm 130, even as we have heard, Father, of the saving power that Christ has, God, my prayer is that no one would leave this place still in the depths of their sin. That they would reach out, call out to you in, for mercy, and they would find a gracious, loving, faithful God who can save them. And God, my prayer is that every believer in this room would walk out of here waiting, hoping, and watching for Christ, living for him. God, I ask all of these things in prayer to you because unless you build this place, it surely will be built in vain. So work now in our hearts to build us together for your glory. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. The one who can sustain you in all things. Let's stand together and sing.